0: So I've been uh, very busy in the last few weeks traveling a bit and new projects and so forth which most of you are aware of to one extent or another and I haven't had time As I was asked the other day what are you going to speak about in Finland and I said oh I didn't even think about it usually I think a little bit ahead of time and you know that over the Years coming here have had some theme, but I didn't have time to give it much thought this trip. So on the way over on the plane, I thought perhaps it would be good to speak on some more basic topics that all of you are more familiar with and try to understand the importance of them. With that in mind, I thought to speak a little bit on the Upadesha Amrit of Sri Gosami, but I don't have a copy of it. it, shows you how unprepared I was, and of course I realized on the plane or thought you probably wouldn't have one either, I know most of the verses so I didn't memorize them all once, so we'll discuss them a little bit and see uh, what develops from there and I'll give the opportunity while I'm here as well for everyone to ask questions, perhaps on mornings or evenings we'll just open a forum for that. So. You're all familiar with Upadesha Amrita. Upadesha means instructions and Amrita means deathless nectar. So those sweet instructions that are like nectar that bring an end to death or acquaintance with the nectar of immortality, not just immortality itself, which is a shallow thing in comparison to live forever, to be forever is one thing, but to be nectarized forever, that's another thing. <laughs> so, this of course is uh, much about what Godi Vaishnavism is concerned with, not just ending death, that is uh, a small thing in comparison to the attainment of Prem, the Pancham of the Supreme, fifth goal of life beyond the fourth, beyond Mukti. I've said before... That this word, Prem, is in a sense very much a Gaudiya word, Prem prayojan, very much a Gaudiya term, not the one we find in other Sampradayas, who, even when speaking about bhakti as an end, generally refer to it as mukti, a liberated expression of devotional service. Ramanuja Sampradaya and this uh, Madhva Sampradaya in particular, and for that matter, it's likely that also there other two Vaishnava Sampradayas, Valava Sampradaya, as it's known today, and um, Nimbarka Sampradaya. I've never heard them refer to their ideal, their goal, as prem not that it isn't prem not that it isn't love, love of God. Those are rag Sampradayas, and then we you know Ramanuja and Madhva Sampradayas are midimarg Sampradayas, so their destination is Vaikuntha. Not that there isn't a Prem there, there is. Rupa Goswami mentions it for that matter in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, but it's the only place that I know of that liberated status in Vaikuntha is referred to as preem. That's an interesting point. The point is, of course, that the Prem that Mahaprabhu is speaking about is so developed that in comparison to the Prem of Vaikuntha, that they were just not really very similar. The full face of love is quite different than reverential love. So anyway, this is the ideal, as you know, of the Gaudi. Prem, Preojin. Prayojan, the fruit, the goal. This is the goal of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, the Prem of Vrindavan, Bhakti. And this is, as I say, far more than just to live forever, immortality, to be forever but to be uh, nectarized forever is the ideal so Upadesha Amrita instructions about that and as you know Rupa Goswami has given many instructions he's so important to our sect sometimes we refer to as the followers of Rupa Rupanuga he who was first instructed by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and blessed by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu touched his head with his feet and awakened all the Vedic truths within him, and the power to understand them and distribute them. Later he did the same thing with Sanatana Goswami, as well, very much the leaders of our Sampradaya. And Rupa Goswami is younger to Sanatana Goswami, and defers to him in his literature as one of his gurus. Nonetheless, in Krishna Lila, that is Agar Leela and Krishna Lila. Rupa Goswami takes a senior position to Sanatana Goswami. So sometimes our Sampradaya is called Rupanuga, Sampradaya, followers of Rupa Goswami. So many instructions we have from him, as I say in particular. He was instructed directly by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu first at Prayag and wrote many books. But sometimes it's said that this particular book that we're discussing, the Upadesh Amrita, was spilled out from the heart of of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Jagannath Puri, Rupa Goswami also visited Mahaprabhu there, spent some time there with him, staying as he did at the place that Mahaprabhu had arranged for Haridas Thakur. And just as Mahaprabhu would go daily to give his darshan to Haridas, so to Rupa Goswami when he stayed there, and Sanatana Goswami when he stayed there as well. At any rate, from that, what he heard from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu towards the later part of his lila in Puri. He compiled these instructions, Upadesha Amrita, some, just few instructions, but they take us from the beginning to the end of the ideal. In fact, they begin almost, in one sense, before the beginning. The first verse of Upadesha Amrita is not about bhakti. You might find that to be rather curious. But we begin without bhakti, (laughs) and then comes bhakti. I guess we're starting without anadi karma a long time without, but its uh, first instruction is not really per se about bhakti, but nonetheless it's about something that comes about readily as a result of bhakti. It's something that that theoretically could be accomplished otherwise, and um, in one sense it's about something that everybody agrees with on some level and seeks to accomplish on some level. And that is more or less control of the mind and, and the senses. Even the wildest people agree that within their own circles, for example, that the senses have to be controlled, the mind has to be controlled, and so forth. Just like I've said before, even thieves have a code of honor amongst themselves. They want to divide the loot evenly, honestly after having robbed from the bank. So, because the verse is about controlling the mind and the senses, which is something, as I say, that everyone readily agrees in human society should be done to one extent or another, and certainly other spiritual paths agree upon and strive to attain and so forth, it's not per se about bhakti. Nonetheless, without accomplishing that, one's bhakti will never become mature. So the verse goes something like this. Vacho vegam, manasa krodha vegam, jibha vegam, udara pasta vegam. Etan vegan yo visaheta dira, sarvam apimam pratibim sasishyat. Rupa Goswami mentions six urges. The urge, vega means urge here. So, vacho, the urge to speak. Vacho vega, manasa, the urge of the mind. Krodha, anger. Jivha, here is a second function of the tongue, the first being speech, to vibrate. And here it refers to it in terms of tasting. And udara-pastavegan, the um, urge of the stomach and the uh, genital. And these things he says, a sober person, dira, who is able to bring these under his control, visahita dhira. So visahita means to subdue, and um, it may also mean to tolerate, which indicates that tolerance is a fair part of the equation that is necessary to subdue these urges. So a sober person who is able to subdue them by tolerating, etc., versus that person is a competent person to Prithibhim sasishat. Prithibhim means the earth, the world. And because the world is really ruled, not by presidents and prime ministers and kings in times gone by, but kings, yes, but the kings, the rulers are the senses. Mind and senses are ruling over everyone. One is able to subdue them. The whole world then is uh, sarvam, the whole, pretty sasya should take instructions from that person, or that person is qualified to instruct, teach the whole world, teach everyone in the world how to come out of the world. He's speaking about controlling these urges to the extent that one come out from underneath them altogether. This is obviously a higher degree, than which uh, people in general may agree that they should be controlled regulated and so forth completely controlled completely subdued implication being that we are completely subdued by them and ruled by them so to come out from underneath them this is what he's talking about and of course as the book goes on and we'll see then the means by which to come out from underneath them that he's talking about that is really the subject of the book, and that is bhakti. So this is accomplished in the context of bhakti. There may be other ways to accomplish such to one extent or another, but the result of doing so by a means other than bhakti will not be bhakti. In other words, by controlling the senses, you will not get bhakti. And as difficult as it may be to control the senses, and people do endeavor in other traditions considerably, after all that labor, from our point of view, they have nothing to show for it, because our and our goal, is preem. And preem is, of course, the mature expression of bhakti, sadhana bhakti, bhav bhakti, preem bhakti, and they cannot get that. But again, as I said earlier, at the same time, in the context of bhakti, by which these can be mastered, if we don't come that far and subdue the senses and mind and so these urges and so forth, then we'll never get preme either. So while we want to emphasize here, Rupa Goswami does, the glory of bhakti and belittle, in a sense, those other methods by which mind and sense control and so forth can come about when we want to speak about what a small accomplishment it is, meager accomplishment that it is, outside of bhakti. At the same time, when we are speaking like that (laughs) and thinking like that, we should pause for a moment and think and try to realize the very goal that we're speaking about, the very path that we're on, we're not very far along on if we've not accomplished this. It's a small thing to bhakti, and it's easy to accomplish by bhakti. Obviously, some renunciation is required. And Bhagavatam says, mm-hmm. Vasudeve Bhagavati Bhakti Yoga Prayogita Janayati Ashubhairagyam Gyanam Chaya Renunciation and knowledge come immediately for one who's engaged in bhakti practically. What does it mean? In one sense, it means that it's very difficult, if not impossible. To sincerely think and pray and apply oneself in bhakti. Which is what bhakti really asks of us, just to give your heart, that's all. So to really give your heart, as soon as you do that, then the uh, world of the senses and the world of the mind informed by sensual impressions and so forth, it disappears practically. You try it. You sincerely make a resolve, and then there's no scope for sense enjoyment. You're immediately a renunciate. You understand? So the two are going in opposite directions. So the idea, of course, is that we apply ourselves like this all the time, constantly. This is to be engaged in bhakti. And by such application, then, as I say, these things are accomplished very easily, very quickly. So we can talk about the path of bhakti but to be on it and consistently and truly exercise our heart, which it calls upon us to do, we may not be that accomplished at, and we can see the practical results, that the mind is uncontrolled, the senses are uncontrolled, and so forth. Perhaps to emphasize this point also, Bhaktivinoda Thakur has said that this verse is for householders, We'll think of it for renunciates; so they should have controlled minds and senses, but not the householders. Bhakti Vinod says that no, this is for householders. This verse, the idea being that the renunciates should have already accomplished this. So then you'll think what about all those monks at Audarya? I don't know if they have controlled minds and senses. You might have some doubt, and your doubt is well, uh, well taken. But that is a special case and the idea there is that they are so in need, they are so they're hopeless, a hopeless bunch and uh, the only hope for them is if they have continuous constant practically sadhu sangha. Only if they're very close and attached to their guru is there any hope for them. Of course by extension, this is the whole idea of bhakti that there is only hope for us in terms of controlling the mind and senses by having association with advanced devotees by coming within the context of what is actually bhakti then is it possible for us to control the mind and senses? There are other sophisticated methods as I mentioned, less sophisticated and some very sophisticated like yoga a very sophisticated means for controlling the mind and senses. And acquiring knowledge and so forth is the path of Gyan. But they pale in comparison to the power of sadhu-sangha and Sadhu here, an association of such Sadhu-sangha means Vaishnavas, in the company of whom we are in, in the proximity of, of actual bhakti, the overflow of bhakti. As a byproduct of being in contact with that, all this will be accomplished as like the first step will be consumed up. And there will be scope for, and this again is the difference now, we know what we're talking about here in Upadesha Amrita, and other paths that seek to accomplish this, controlling the mind in the sense, is that here in Bhakti, in the context of sadasangha there will be sufficient opportunity for engaging the mind, and words, mind, even anger. And you know that I've told a story before of how Bhaktisiddhanta, talk sometimes speaking about the supreme Prayojan with great uh, enthusiasm, and conviction, with a strong sense of how unfortunate it would be if people in this age, at which time the dispensation of Mahaprabhu is available, they don't get that, they get something less than that, that they get distracted or they get taken in by another ideal, thinking of how unfortunate that would be, then uh, he would sometimes pound his fist and his face would blush and turn red and he would express some anger. It is said about him in one of his pranam verses that Virudhapa Siddhanta Dvanta Harine, apa Siddhanta, he would become very enraged at any deviation from the strict path given by Rupa Goswami, that people would be taken from the center of that path, somewhere on the circumference or beyond. And so on, a, on one occasion that he was expressing such anger, and his face blushed and turned red, some of his students felt a little uneasy, and they approached Pujapad Sridhar Maharaj, whom they often would approach after the talks of Bhakti siddhanta Sarasthita Thakur. he was one of the persons they would approach, and asked for further explanation and clarification of what Gurudev had spoken about, the implications of it, and so on and so forth. So on this occasion, expressing some concern that's not good, Gurudev is becoming a little angry. After all, vachau vegam, manasuk anger should be controlled. But then Bhujapachirama expressed a different idea. He said, oh, you thought that was anger, I thought that was the full expression of, and a beautiful meaning of the well-known phrase lotus face, face tinged with a little red, pink, but his face was like a lotus. So he saw some beauty in the outward expression of anger, tracing it to the heart of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, full as it was, as I say, of concern for the jivas, of Kali Yuga, that they might get what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came to give and not be cheated out of that. So, as I say, there's some scope, some place for anger also, not to do away with these things, but to find application for them in the context of bhakti. Hanuman's anger is a good example also sometimes brought out in defense of Ram, in pursuit of Sita, against the Rabans, and so forth. So, this being the case, that we're seeking practical application for all of these urges, directing it, as I said this morning, towards the center, towards the root. This is a very different idea from other schools of thought, who seek to accomplish sense control, mind control, and, and have no place for for anger. So even that, Vachovega and other things will go on, but it begins with vachovegum. Vachovegam, so speech, there's two divisions here. The uh, words, mind, and anger, and then tongue, belly, genital. Tongue's really in the center, as I mentioned, and it goes upward with speech. It includes, in a sense, mind and anger. If it's controlled speech, that is to say, largely anger and mind will be controlled also. So what you talk about, that you'll think about. And if tongue, in terms of its tasting function, is controlled, then the lower side of the belly and the genital will also come under control. This is the idea. So starting anyway with words, speech. So, again, in the context of bhakti, there's much scope for speaking. And when speaking is about Krishna, then this is considered to be speech that's truly controlled. There was a fellow years ago, probably still there, in California. He has an ashram, and he took a vow of uh, silence, monavrata. When I was young, I did that also. I took a vow of silence when I was about 22. I wasn't involved with any particular spiritual discipline, but I was interested in spiritual life, and I found that um, getting together with people, that it was my perception, at least at the time, was that people were mostly talking just to assert themselves and to make their point and put themselves in the center. This was underlying much of the conversation, and I felt that no one was really fit to be in the center. I took a vow of silence, and I didn't know about all these things at that time. So much but I thought that was a good idea spiritual but obviously I started talking about it at some point and I haven't stopped since and and so the idea is that Krishna consciousness gives us much scope to speak statement of the sutras is pertinent in this regard ikṣitēr nāśabdat is said by Shankar in his interpretation there he emphasizes the idea that the absolute cannot be put in words and we don't disagree that we don't think that the absolute can be captured by words beyond speech from where words having gone return from where mind having gone returns but we take that statement of the sutras a little differently rather than you cannot speak about the absolute truth because it's beyond words we say you cannot say enough about the Absolute. So there's much to be said, never enough. And therefore, the Vaishnavas should rightfully take their place at the pulpit behind the microphone, and appropriately as well, all the Advaitins should sit down silently. That is their philosophy. So if you want to discuss philosophy with a and then you tell them, you follow your path and I'll follow mine, you sit down and say nothing, and I will do all the talking. <laughs> That's how the two paths work. Then you will win the argument. He has nothing to say. Sit silently. So, we have so much to say. This fellow I was talking about had taken a moanavrata, and he used to keep a chalkboard and on it, and then he would write, bring me this, or, or do this, or do that, and so on. So this is not what we mean by controlling the speech. You no, know, writing on a chalkboard is the same thing. By this time his muscles for flexing his tongue for speaking had become atrophied, and so it wasn't even a possibility of talking anymore. By doing such, or cutting off the tongue, or in any way stopping any of these senses artificially is not what's being talked about by Rupa Gosami. Some of my brothers went to that fellow, and they said to him, you've accepted a vow of silence, but better than that is to only speak about Krishna. They told him right to his face. And he said, you know, he wrote on the board, is that what you do? A smart fellow. Understand. They said you should only talk about Krishna. So he wrote, is that what you do? And then they blushed and they were embarrassed. They came and told me that they were defeated. I said, you should have said, no, that's not what we do, but that's what our Guru does. He only talks about Krishna, so therefore you should come to him. So again, like I said in the beginning, it's one thing to talk about these things in the height of bhakti and, and so on and so forth, another thing to do them. If we are busy applying ourselves, then we won't have much time to just challenge people, but our example will not just challenge people, but will encourage people. And this is the standard very much of Chaitanya Dev, that what he would teach by example, more so than by precept. Not that we don't have volumes and volumes of precept, but they are all about setting a good example and applying ourselves in such a way that our very being, the way we conduct ourselves, would be compelling and attractive to people. So example speaks louder than precept. How will we make people devotees? A fellow came to me once with a big idea in Vrindavan for making a big temple and he was going to make so many devotees as a result of it and this huge idea that he wanted to accomplish. And I looked at him and I thought, this guy's just dreaming about what he wants to do. Multi-billion dollar idea. And I didn't even think it was a good idea for that matter. But he was asking my opinion. I said, I don't have such big ideas. He wanted to build this big temple. I said, my idea is much smaller. I'm trying to build a temple in my heart. And so he was embarrassed by that. He realized that's a hard thing. Even if he could get all the money and stone and marble and whatever, make a big temple, and he wanted to make like a Disneyland or something, and Krishna Disneyland or something like that, in Vrindavan. You could do all of that, probably, busy work, and still have not changed your heart. It's possible. So it's easy to deceive ourselves. And therefore. Verses like this of Rupa Goswami in the basic teachings are important for us to focus on. We don't want by an intellectual sleight of hand that we think we've jumped ahead because we've got a lot of information that makes things like controlling the mind and senses be boring and uninteresting topics. If we actually do control our mind and senses in the context of bhakti, our life will not be boring at all. So we will become very exciting. We'll have real access to the inner landscape. We won't be only just bhaktas on the outside. As Bhakti Thakur said, dressed with Sika and Kuntimala and Tilak, he is just a Kali Chela. A Chela, disciple of Kali Yuga only. So conquering speech. And so how we do that? Yes, so there's much to talk about in Krishna consciousness, application of words and writing, it includes, as I say. So words and what you speak about, what you write about, that will have much to do with what you think about. To control the mind is busy with so many things, and this brings us to the prominent emphasis as well of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur. Ragh-bhakti, our interest, is very much about the mind, Manasa, Manasi Seva, to Smaranam, Remembrance of the Lord, Dhyan, Meditation upon the Lord's Pastimes. You know that in the Brajbhakti, Bhakti, practically speaking, Krishna never sleeps. This is a big difference between the Lord's appearances in other places in connection with different types of devotees. We don't hear even in Dwarka that he's out in the middle of the night running around. He's in the palace with his queens and and so forth. What to speak of in Vaikuntha uh, or Brahma Loka and other such places, practically, especially in the relation of this world, the Jagat Ishwar, the Paramatma feature of Sri Krishna, he's practically sleeping at least half the time. Indeed, the world is said to be his dream, so whether he wakes up at all, yoga nidra, yoga of sleeping. So the idea is that um, in Vrindavan he's practically never sleeping, so he's very accessible there. (laughs) The devotees have kept him awake all night long and active by the force and nature of their love. They haven't allowed him to go to sleep, so the other types of worship, practically putting him to sleep, he's bored by that. Oh yes, oh, swaha, <laughs> he's just <laughs> snoring from that. There's no, not much love there, no intimate dealings. But the way in which the Brajbasins have approached him, he's paying attention to that. Practically he says, and Chaitanya Charitam reached to the pen of Krishna Dasa, that this, this stuff doesn't attract me. All the way up to Vaikuntha, and Dwarka, Vaidhi Bhakti can take us all the way up there. And he says, it's kind of boring to me. It doesn't attract my interest. And so the practical expression of that lack of interest, even in the context of those Leelas, the Shrishti Leela, Dwarka Leela and so forth, is, like I'm saying, to one extent, he's, part of the time at least he's asleep. In Braj, he's never asleep practically never asleep. Up all night with the gopis and come home and just climb into bed as if he was asleep and maybe just doze for a moment before. His friends are coming and waking him up and Mother Yashoda is coming and calling him, it's late, it's late. The cows have to be built. And there's ten zillion cowherd boys in the courtyard jumping up and down, waiting to go into the forest, cowherding for the whole day and so forth. He's very busy attending to the demanding nature of their love and affection. It's keeping him awake. And so this leela that's going on continually, we refer to this as like the 24-7 Krishna. (laughs) It's uh, astakal, the day is divided into eight divisions, and it covers all the hours of the 24 of the day. So... This is, again, this is the nectar of immortality. There's time here, passage of time within immortality. And so the devotees in their minds are preoccupied with this constant movement of the Lord throughout his lila. So this smarnam is very much central to this Raghunuga Bhakti. But the emphasis of bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthi talk thagpa is very practical. He says that by controlling the speech through kirtan, that the mind will become under control. This is in the lower sense. If you control the speech, mind will come under control. You try it. What you talk about, then naturally you're going to think about it. You're going to think about that more, what comes out of your mouth, and then you're going to think about what comes out of other people's mouths. So when you speak about Krishna, then you really have to pay attention also, now I'm speaking about Krishna, and others are listening. Like he spoke to the reporter, then you have to pay this morning. You have to pay attention, make sure you said it right, and so forth. And you're paying attention to what you're saying. So, skirtana prabhavi smarana svabhāve He said, by kirtan, then this smarnam will come about naturally. And this, of course, is some emphasis of his, oh, in relation to those who, without Sufficiently cleansing the heart through kirtanam, which is the first accomplishment from kirtanam. Mahaprabhu speaks of, chetu dārpanam arjanam, seek to engage the mind in Mm -hmm. lilasmarnam. He kind of responds to this. He felt that this is rather artificial. I've said before that yes, it's true that Krishna's lilas are non different from Krishna, and Krishna's name is non different from Krishna. So, Why not then just think about Krishna's pastimes, non-different from Krishna? We say, just chant. So why not just think, why make any division here? Because there's a reason. Why is that? Because although we hear that the pastimes of Krishna are non-different from Krishna, the name of Krishna is non-different from Krishna. What else do we hear? We hear about the name, but not about the leela that that name is more generous than Krishna, nonetheless. You follow? The name is non-different from Krishna, but still there's a difference between the name and the named. And the difference is that the name is more generously disposed. And by giving himself the name as he does, then the implication is that he's potentially captured by those who get his name. Like they say, did you get his name? The idea is if you got his name, then you've got him. You can trace him, you can find him out, and so forth. And nowadays, if they get your name, your number, like your social security number, then they can take your identity. They can become one with you. So this is part of our ideal to become one with Krishna and different. To realize our oneness with Krishna. Make unity with him for the sake then of differentiated expression of love that is the Leela constitutes so there is special power in his name and by the name by taking the name by speaking about the name and the philosophy that underlies the theology that underlies the Nam Dharma given by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu this is all a form of Kirtan then you will capture him and in the name is the Rupa and in the name is the Leela the form the pastime, the guna the qualities and so forth so, kīrtana prabhāve samālana that The absorption of the mind that we want in Raja bhakti that it's very much about, will be accomplished by kirtan. In terms of trying to control the mind, we shall start by trying to control speech. Vāchū vegam, manasa and uh, mind, krodhā vegam and anger. And then this is what we will become like Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi angry with, displeased with. And there's one thing to lose one's temper and another thing to use one's temper. This is our idea, how to use the temper. And in general, as I said earlier, most people in spiritual traditions will think there's no place for this. We're finding a place What to speak of temper, for anger, for passion also. And then we go to the other side, jiva-vegam vegam So, controlling the tasting. And as I said earlier, this will have much to do with controlling the urge of the belly and the genital. And the implication is there's application of these things also in bhakti. So, again, how user-friendly it is. We are possessed of senses, mind and senses, and thus these urges... And to control them, this seems to be a formidable task. They're always drawing on us, calling upon us. So if we can find a way to answer the call, so to speak, if we can center them in such that they're calling upon us as they do readily, constitutes the control that we're after, rather than trying to stop them in their tracks. It's like the train is going down the track, at a certain speed, and you know, controlling the senses like trying to get in front of it and stop it, you'll just get run over. But if somehow you can capture the engineer, something like that, is the idea. Change the course of the train. Let it go at the full speed. Gopi's mind are going after Krishna, just like the example is given. Just like our mind, like a young girl's mind, will go after an attractive young man just run there so their minds are going like just running like that after krishna there's no real difference in a sense the bhava comes and takes over the mind like fire takes over iron it's still an iron rod that you stick in the fire but now it's acting like fire if you touch someone with it they feel they are touched by fire not by an iron rod so this bhava comes Goswami explains Sudha Shatva Visheshatma Prema Suryam Susamibha. It comes and it takes over the mind. Mind continues to function like it does now, but now it's consumed by bhava. We don't want just to stop the mind, no mind. Sometimes we talk about stopping it, but I mean in this way. Just a different object for it to be focused upon. And it's going to continue to function, and senses also. Gopis are trying to stop the mind, just like we are, (laughs) trying to control the mind. (laughs) We want their dilemma. They're trying not to think of Krishna because it's so painful for them to think of him, especially in his absence. And then the way he conducts himself sometimes is maddening, maddening to them. So we find in in some instances them praying to stop thinking about Krishna, and they can't. mind has just gone like this. This is the idea. So, for tongue, anyway, then we have good application, tasting the uh, prashad offered to the Lord. Of course, the idea here is what? We offer palatable dishes to the Lord because we're offering them to Him, preparing them for Him. What our interest is, is how it tastes to Him. How did He like it? Did it please Him? This is all we're thinking about. So when we take prasad, this is what we should think about. If we can take the prasad and we can taste it and we can say, this is not good, we can think, Krishna didn't like this. This wasn't prepared with devotion. Why? Because, well, it was burnt and someone wasn't paying attention. Possibly, but it could also be burnt and someone was paying attention. Because he's tasting the bhakti, but generally speaking, if one is actually paying attention and doing with bhakti, then it will come out nicely also. This is the because they're actually paying attention. There may be instances where there are apparent technical discrepancies, <laughs> but the Lord accepts it anyway. Babagrahi Janardana, he's sometimes referred to as the Lord who accepts the essence of the offering, and indeed he does, he says in Gita that he eats the bhakti in the offering. Patram pushpam phalam yome bhakti prayachati, tadaham bhakti uparita mashnami prayatatmanam He says, I'll eat the flower that's offered. And generally he doesn't eat flowers. He <laughs> I'll eat the flower that's offered <laughs> with bhakti. We have the example of his eating the peels or the banana offered by Vidura's wife when he came to Hastinapur. And by contrast, why did he come to Hastinapur? Ostensibly on that occasion, at the invitation of Duryodhana, who wanted to gain his patronage, and a big festival was arranged, and food fit for a king was prepared. And Krishna came in and ignored the whole arrangement and went straight to the house of Vidura. And Vidura was not in, but his wife was there, and he said, I'm hungry, I've come all this way. So she was shocked, Krishna's in her house, and all she had was some bananas. She said, I don't have anything. He said, well, you've got some bananas. She peeled the bananas and gave the peels and threw away the bananas in her ecstasy. And of course, he was eating the peels. So when it was heard that Krishna's come, he's in the house of Badura, then, Nard and Badura went there, and they were amazed to see this. Vidura was amazed that he's coming to my house, and Nard said, yeah, and he's eating the peels, that's even more... Amazing, and when he was asked why he didn't go to Duryodhana's house, he said, oh, he doesn't like my devotees, so I don't go to those places, because he was envious of the Pandavas in the leela, So he may eat the peels, that's true, but we should try to cook and prepare the food in such a way that it will please the senses of Krishna, and we should taste it with that in mind. Mahabru would taste the Jagannath Prashad and think how Jagannath had tasted it, and that would make him pass out. This food, he said, it has got the saliva of Jagannath on it. That's how he looked at it. It has this saliva of Jagannath that's been in his mouth as he tasted. When I went to Puri the last time, a devotee took me to a house that's very closely connected to the temple compound, and they were able to get the rice and the dal. You know, mostly if you go to get Jagannath, it will be the sweets and so forth but they got the rice and the dal and they gave me an, and the idea is that you know he's going to eat rice and dal that's the main part of the meal he might eat the sweet too but lots of sweets offered but you know he's going to eat rice and dal that's the main you know, there if you don't eat the rice and dal you haven't eaten so the idea was to get the prashad that surely got his saliva on it was <laughs> the spirit of it it was, you know, it was really we were, we were taking prashad this is very much the spirit of Jagannath Puri there. Living on the remnants of Lord Jagannath. The whole town's built around the Jagannath temple. Hundreds and thousands of people all employed in the Lord's service. And so many kitchens there. Huge kitchens. Kitchen complex. So many cooks and so many offerings a day and so forth. The whole consciousness is that the Lord has eaten this. And these are the remnants. It's in Mahaprabhu's they said he was like moved to comment like this. It's got the saliva of Jagannath on it. It's something that's like nourishing him as much as food is nourishing to us and, and satisfying to taste. Tongue means for quality, stomach means for quantity, right? So we want a quantity of food with the stomach and taste quality with the tongue. These two, they go together. So this is the way we should think about prashad has been touched by the saliva of the Lord on it. And then Mahabhava was, like, excited. He's to the point of practically becoming oblivious. Look at the example of Raghunath Das. He would eat the remnants of Jagannath that had been eaten, by eaten by eaten by one after another, and the cows even had left it. And he was taking that. What kind of faith he had, Mahaprasad, Govinde, Namabrahmanivaiṣṇava, what kind of faith he had in Mahaprasad. When I was younger in Prabhupada's mission, there was a time when we didn't know some of these things, and Chaitanya Charitamrita had never been published, but I always had great faith in Mahaprasad. I was living in Prabhupada's temple in Los Angeles. We used to call it New Dwarka. I think he named it like that. It was a kind of opulent place for all of his temples. It was his, like, headquarters in the Western world and so forth. And one of the devotees there was very uh, interested in fulfilling Prabhupada's desire to see books distributed. and. I came there and I didn't know how to do anything. I never had any education or job training or anything like that. And I saw all the other devotees just very qualified in so many different spheres of activity and service. And I thought, well, I'll just go out and talk to people about Krishna. I don't know if it's anybody wants it, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> so that's what I would do. I'd go out and talk to people on the street and try to sell them a book. Later it became apparent to me, through the help of this one devotee, that Prabhupada really wanted to have his books distributed and that he was always trying to get other devotees to go out and do it. There's only a few of us who would do it. So anyway, with a view to inspire the devotees, he made this competition that whoever would distribute the most books in the week would get the Sunday feast plate of the deity, all the Mahaprasadam. We were all quite fond of Mahaprasadam, of course, in those days. So that person would win the plate. He posted it on the board. I thought, well, that's something worth, you know... (laughs) Worth going for, and so anyway, the first week it was there. I won, I won the plate, and so I was a newer devotee, and it was and that inspired this competition. This fellow had a way for this like transcendental competition, and then um, he changed it. Some more devotees started to go out and sell books and so forth. Then he changed it that whoever would win would win the plate for the whole week, lunch plate for the whole week. So then I started to win that. But my schedule that I got for myself was I would go out all day long, so I didn't have time to come back and take the lunch meal, so I got the breakfast meal. And it was all these sweets, <laughs> halava and burfi and sandash and rasgulla and fruit and like this, and kheer and so it was a little <laughs> transcendentally uh, intoxicating diet, but... <laughs> I would faithfully eat the whole plate and then my schedule changed where I would go out and come back and then go out again so then I would get the noon plate but in either case I would eat every bit of it and I would think that I've won this you know the Lord allowed me to win this and that I need this in order to go out and be amongst the people and so forth it's uh, you know inoculating me from any contamination so I would faithfully eat every bit and then as time went on, I got purified more and more by that. I had faith in Mahaprasadam. And, and I would think, here I am, thinking that, I'm, that by eating this, I'll become purified and so forth. But this is prasadam. It's the Lord's remnants. He's generous. He's giving it to me. I should be generous. I should give it to others. That will be good for me. So then I used to take the plate and I would distribute it to everybody And then I made it a practice of coming home just after everybody had taken prashad. Then I would get the plate. And then I would distribute it to everybody. And then I would go around. We used to eat outside. Wherever any prashad had spilled, I would go and collect that and pick it up and make sure that it was honored. People thought I was a little crazy. And I was, but actually, it's a true story. And this was uh, how the purifying effect of Mahaprasad. It's not about eating. In other words, uh, just gratifying the tongue and and so forth. And even if we have a little motivation in that regard to win the plate and <laughs> and get all the sweets to ourselves or whatever, it will have a purifying effect. But it's not about eating. sri Bhagavat Prasada Triptam Hari He's happy to see that others are tasting the prasad of the Lord, that they taste it just as he got it. So they may start to think about the prasad like this. So he's tasting. You're taking and thinking, hmm, how he tasted this, how he must have felt when he ate this or this, and so on. It's not about just satisfying the uh, voracious tongue. So... Great power in this then, and I got thinner and thinner as a result of that. You know, I lost weight by the faith in Mahaprasad. In other words, the quantity urge of the belly was also controlled. Is the idea, and so to control the tongue for tasting and the belly and the genital, then we have also place for that. And I know a fellow is a friend of mine, and. He's been involved in Gaudiya Vaishnavism for a long time, but he seems to never be able to stick to one version of it or another. (laughs) There are quite a few versions out there. And so of late, I guess, he's gotten involved in this preoccupation with the idea that bhakti is a form of Vedanta that is very much wedded with humanity. When we put Gaudiya in front of Vedanta, we're interfacing our human experience, with Vedanta. Vedanta kind of takes apart the whole human experience, which is basically emotions, the feelings that we have, and it kind of dissects them all, and there's nothing left there. What are those feelings? What is that personality? It's here today and gone tomorrow. So when we look through this kind of scientific, if you will, eyes of Vedanta, the whole world just kind of melts and... There's nothing to do. There's no impetus to interact with sense objects, and we see it for what it is, and so forth. But then when we put the godi in front of that, it comes around again, full circle, and then there's meaning in human life to the extent that Krishna's appearing, like human in human society, to express himself. And then as I say, as we're talking about there's expression of the senses and place for thinking and so forth. And so, as we're discussing, we have the urge to eat so and then eat and it's part of bhakti and Vedanta and because it so much goes to the core of our human experience therefore the core of our human experience very much being about sexuality also is his conclusion for applying sexuality in Gaudiya Vaishnavism and as part of the sadhana if you can eat if you can hear you can taste and then the metaphor, if you will, or the expression of Radha and Krishna is a sexual romantic metaphor, so can we not apply? This is very much at the heart. of. So it goes then to the Sahajya idea where they incorporate this kind of sexual acts in sadhana. And there's uh, these Sahajya sect. Is, they claim to be the real true followers of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and they see Radha and Krishna as a metaphor for human sexual interaction. And they have a certain sadhana that involves adultery and so on and, and I, said, well, I said well you know it, it, I think it very much does incorporate that aspect of human society and its practice but not the way that you're that you're talking about it but rather in such a way like it does with all of the senses that we engage in the service of the Lord that the urge will come under control and for that matter my experience I told him is that As we become absorbed in this, the interest in all of these things diminishes, it doesn't increase. Interest in tasting, as I've just explained to you, an example of taking prasadam. As you advance in Krishna consciousness, as the soul comes out, and you lose interest in tasting, you lose interest in eating, actually. But to think and contemplate, and then to try and see how the Lord was tasting it, that is a whole... (laughs) a whole different thing than a desire to eat and taste. So my experience has been consistently as one advances in spiritual life, one loses interest in all these human activities. They all become Krishna-conscious activities. And similarly, with obviously, with sexual desire. Therefore, there should be a way to engage in it in such a way that the interest in it is diminished. And so we have some scope for that, of course, in married life. And he was bringing up the fact that there's a lot of sexual repression in different sects of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. So it's very artificial and it comes out in other ways and so forth. So there must be a way to really let loose and so to speak and yes <laughs> and use this as part of sadhana was his creative kind of idea. Of course I'm, you know, very much in disagreement with his ideas along these lines and so forth. So I was explaining to him, as I say, that I think that there is a place for that, but it's such that it causes it to diminish. And I explained to him that I'm careful in my group to try to engage the devotees in a way that the effect of sexual repression, artificial repression, will not come about. And so I encourage them to follow a, a, a moral standard that makes sense in terms of the times in which they live, which are complicated. In today's world they are complicated. I mean, we don't, for example, make sure that all the girls are married at six years old or something like that. <laughs> it's not the world that we live in. And uh, there will be problems if we try to do something like that. To try to just take that and other remnants of a time gone by and apply that will perhaps result in the kind of repression and so forth that uh, he was pointing out, which is obvious and not desirable. So every culture has its own way of figuring things out. I mean, it's true in Western society also that parents want their children to have a uh, lasting marriage and wholesome, and they want that. But there are different ways of accomplishing it other than, like I say, making sure the girls get married at 6 and the boys are married at 8 or 10 or whatever it is, or 12, or something like that. And granted, it usually requires some experimentation and so forth, but you may end by allowing that, which is part of the culture, then you may accomplish the goal more readily than by trying to take the exactly some ancient method and apply it today. After all, one of the big Gaudiya Vaishnavas groups has the largest divorce rate, <laughs> bigger than and at least the American public, which has a pretty good rate of divorce too. I guess maybe fifty percent. Iskcon's about eighty percent. So, <laughs> so at any rate, there's a place for this also. The attraction that brings the two together, there's a place for expressing that, but in the context of staying together in a monogamous sense, where there's going to have to be compromise or sacrifice on the part of each person and considerable for that matter. You know, she wants to do it like this, he wants to do it like that and they have to compromise. If they learn from, rather than do that begrudgingly, they learn from that that this, this is giving me a chance to grow and see the other person's perspective and stop being selfish and so forth. This is the idea. So there's a, and again, there's no place for this in gyanmar And according to Krishna, whose other name is Yogeshwar, There's no place for it in yoga as a discipline, which he describes in the Gita also in the seventh chapter, or excuse me, in the sixth chapter. So, in this way, these urges, as Rupa Goswami describes them, so which are part of the the human experience, they have expression in the context of bhakti. So the idea is not to, as much as to control the senses, as to be engaged in bhakti. And central to that, the birth of that, and the fostering of that in a healthy way is all sadhu-saṅga. So keeping that company, then all these kind of engagements come about for our senses. And the r- idea is that sense control is immediately accomplished. Vasudeva, Bhagavati, Bhakti, Yoga, Prayojita Janayati, vairagyam Gyanam, Detachment and knowledge and, by extension, controlling the mind, senses and so forth this automatically comes about in the context of bhakti. So these things that are mentioned by Rupa Goswami, they are not to control the mind and senses as a beginner. It's not bhakti in and of itself. But without accomplishing that in the context of bhakti, there won't be any bhakti either, or there'll be very little bhakti. There'll be question how much bhakti there is if this isn't coming about, if this isn't happening. All these urges are about desires, really. So, again, not just to plug the ears and... We're blindfolded, and so forth, but change our heart. And this Sankirtan is so powerful in this regard. It's is so powerful. Such power it has to change the heart and automatically then control our minds and senses. In one sense, Bhaktivinoda Thakur says, this upadesha uh, Amrita is about two things, the whole of the text, pratikul and anukul, which are two aspects of sharanagati. Sharanagati is the outward expression of shraddha. Shraddha is not bhakti. But it's what makes us eligible for bhakti. It's not bhakti in one sense. That it's not something you do, shraddha, but it expresses itself in a sixfold way that we call sharanagati. And two aspects of this are pratikul, anukul. Pratikul means foregoing things that are not favorable to bhakti. And anukul means accepting things that are favorable to bhakti. So in this relation to this text, we find pratikul. Foregoing these urges, of course, the way we do it is by accepting things that are that are favorable, so the book in the vision of bhakti Minotakar is very much about this aspect of Sharanagati, which is, as i 've said, Shinimarsh used to say, the stage on which the drama of bhakti is performed. So more about that as we continue. any question? Yes. Guru Manaj- in a sense, it would seem that krodha, or oh, anger, is a function of the mind. So I'm curious why Lupa Goswami asked about what you anger instead of, for example, fear or fear something like that? Maybe because uh, one of the main functions of krodha is a result of these urges not being satisfied. When they're not being satisfied, they the become Angry, so that stands directly related to all these things. Another question? Say about speaking about Krishna, but in our lives, as we are uh, householders, most of the time we did not meet people who are interested in speaking about Krishna. And what about this? How to engage in speaking about Krishna? Well, one answer to that is that householders' life is mostly about their home. And everything that they do is in relation to that. So they have their wives, their husbands, their children, and that's like the center. That's what's most important to them. Everything's revolving around that. You're only at work because it's going to serve to facilitate your family life and so forth. And so that's the main place. You reach out from there you know, here and there, and interact with other people to foster family life and some extension of that in forms of close friends. So everybody has a small circle. And the reason that the circle is small is because the closer the circle is, is the more you're on the same page and you have similar interests. So you're going to spend the greater balance of your time with the people whom you have something in common with. Even though you may be at work for eight hours in a day, the extent to which you interact with the people there and feel free and express yourself and so forth is going to be less than that with your circle of friends that you spend your spare time and your fun. Maybe there's somebody from work who you get along with and so then they become part of your circle. So even for a monastic, he or she has to interact with people. Certainly to accomplish things, and it's not that everybody we meet, we preach to them and so forth. We have to go to the bank and we have to go to the grocery store and do so many ordinary activities. Of course, we're doing them for Krishna, but anyway, we have to do them, we have to interact with people, and we can't talk with them about Krishna very readily. So it's not that much different for a householder. And the point being here that in that small circle there, there is so much opportunity. But we should see how we don't use that opportunity. With my wife, with my close friends, and our friends, you know, look at how many devotees there are from Poland. So, Of course, you live in different cities and so forth, I suppose. But the idea is to grow that so that you have a group with whom you really live to spend time with, to do the things that you're really interested in, you really like to do. It's a given that you're going to have to spend time with people who aren't interested in it and you cannot share intimately with them. But the reason that you're spending time with them is to facilitate having time with your smaller group of like-minded persons. And amongst them, you talk about Krishna. And when you do, and you spend your time like that, the time spent with other people, it's going to be apparent that there's something that you do when you're not at work that's really turning you on (laughs) and making you different and making you stand out and so forth. And they're going to become interested in that. And then they're going to ask you to talk about it and then you find yourself extending your circle of friends this is the idea so rather than be concerned about that there is so much time that you have that you can't talk about Krishna because of the people that you interact with and the circumstances you're in you should think about how much time you don't talk about Krishna when you're with people who are also interested in talking about Krishna fill up that time first you follow? what else? What's the difference between tolerance and repression? Well, one difference is that tolerance brings liberation. (laughs) And uh, repression, as opposed to tolerance, is said to be the other side of attachment. And attachment doesn't bring about liberation, it brings about bondage. So repression will also bring about bondage, and tolerance will bring about liberation. So we should see if our tolerance is freeing us or if our so-called tolerance which is actually repression is causing us to be more preoccupied with whatever it is that we're trying to control or tolerate for example if you're living at the monastery and you're like constantly thinking about I could be doing this or I could be doing that I could be making money here I could be touring in a band and be you know, it would be so cool, and and then you think, well, I'm at the monastery, I shouldn't be thinking, I don't want to do that. But it's just like, it's constantly on you know, your, your joppa, your, that's what you're thinking about, and you're really somewhere else. So, the result of tolerating, actually, is that it will, it will go away. The result of repressing is it would just come up, it would just show itself in some other way. So it, it doesn't go away, it's like moving it from one pocket to the next or something like that. So, of course, it'll take some time for it to go away by tolerating. We should find that if we're able to tolerate it, there'll be periods where we're not preoccupied and it's not being taken away, and it doesn't take us away for, you know, that you're not happy in your engagement and so forth. So you have to find the art, you know, on different levels, obviously, of this. And and as I said before, you have to... uh, How do I express it? Um, You have to give the mind, the senses, a little room. You have to work with the mind rather than against the mind. So just working against the mind will certainly result in some kind of oppression. Working with the mind, that's the art of yoga. Yukta Haraviharasya yukta, what is it? It's going to need some room to express itself. It's been moving in a certain direction for so long. You can't just turn it around. So we do it. It's been thinking about what to eat, so eat something nice. So we have nice things to eat. But still, beyond the actual activities of bhakti that we can engage our mind and senses in, you have to give the mind and senses some recreation too, within limits. Like Prabhupada would sometimes say, can you tell a joke? <laughs> and disciples, these guys are crazy, have them, they think, is he testing me? But I, no, he actually wants to just relax for a minute and hear a joke. <laughs> do you know any jokes from your culture? I know some. I was reading this book I mentioned on the blog that this fellow had written. And he got on, Probably got on the plane once with his servant, and there was some classical Indian music playing. And Prabhupada said, do you like this music? And he says, and I thought, Prabhupada's testing me. It's not chanting. Do I like this music? And This is neurotic. <laughs> We don't want that. And he said, Well, I don't know, Prabhupada. And Prabhupada said, Very nice music. I like this very much. <laughs> so if this book is just full of stuff like that, where he's just like neurotic. And Prabhupada's just trying to be himself, and he doesn't even quite figure it out in the book. that that's what's, after all these years, it's the stories of one of Prabhupada's servants about being with Prabhupada and this whole backdrop that has been put forward by others of Aishwarya about Prabhupada. Every cough is like divine. Every silence, every pause, every, every word and so forth. And it's very artificial the way they've tried to make him to be a godly figure taking away the charm and the humanness of him and so forth. Anyway, yes, even in the context of this book where much of his humanness and sweetness comes out, the fellow's comments on it are all very like like that. They're kind of neurotic. So anyway, point being that Prabhupada had given a good example. He would do things like that, and that's like working with the mind a little bit. So it's an art to tolerate and not to repress. It's an art of yoga. But the difference, basically, between the two is that tolerance is liberating, and repression is uh, binding. What else? Another question? All right. So we'll stop there. Sri Rupa Goswami, Prabhupada Ji. Vakti Vidhanthi Swami Prabhupada Ki Jai, Vakti Rakti Rakti Maharaj Ki